All right, starting now, welcome back to the Slay Less Show. This is Slay Less, a.k.a. Celeste Graham. We're here for episode three. Uh, today's episode is a conversation about colorism part one. Now, part one is part one of a four, maybe five-part series, depending on how I decide to uh, continue on with this, but for sure probably going to be at least three or four-part series. Um Today I have uh, here with me three very special women. Uh, I know them all from different capacities. I met one of them during grad school. We weathered the storm together through our master's program. One I met protesting in Dallas during um, just the time whenever there was so much police brutality happening that so many people were coming together because we were just tired of seeing all of it. And then the last young lady I met because she was one of the students I worked with. Uh, I worked for a nonprofit for three years and she was one of my babies who faithfully came to the programs that I threw, even though nobody else would come. But she was one of the ones that was always there. That's why she always got a scholarship. I made sure. (laughs) But today we're going to talk about colorism, uh, which is a very touchy subject. I say touchy because so many different feelings are brought up whenever we talk about colorism. But I felt that today it would be important to divide this into a series and into a stage and a space where women who are of darker skin tones have ample opportunity to really talk about the ways that colorism affects us and affects those women that look like us and those people that look like us because we understand colorism is, uh, it functions in so many different ways and so many different ethnicities, nationalities, but especially, it's especially prevalent to us as black women here in the black community, here in America, and the way that race is situated the way that the proximity to whiteness really works. So we're going to go ahead and just dive into the first question. Uh, well, before we do that, I want y'all to enter, you know, introduce yourselves to the people like your social media handles where they can follow you. Just whoever wants to go first, feel free. So we can start over here if you want to. Okay. Well, my name is Felucia Olawade, uh, but I go by Fo, and my Instagram is Foe, F-O underscore Aduni, A-D-U-N-N-I. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Follow her, y'all. Show her some love. All right. My name is Kendriana. I am an interdisciplinary creative. Um, I'm a poet. I'm a writer. I'm also a visual artist. Uh, you can find me on the gram, you know, uh, trolling men and white folks, <laughs> stunting, just doing all kinds of stuff. It's Kendriana.speaks. That's K-E-N-D-R-I-A-N-A.speaks. I'm working on a website, but I also have a Tumblr because it's easier for me to use. And that's kendrianaspeaks.tumblr.com. Okay. And I am Kiana Kita Hall. I do prefer to go by Kita. You can find me on social media as just call me underscore Kita at any of my social media handles. Um, If you follow me, you're likely to find someone who is very much a community activist and you'll see tons of pictures and posts regarding that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, We are in good company here today. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, So first we have to acknowledge that colorism, no matter where it exists, is a tool of white supremacy. Like first and foremost, it's a tool of white supremacy designed to uh, measure people based on their, basically how white they are, their proximity to whiteness. Uh, We also have to acknowledge that colorism, even though it may all stem from the same place, affects different subgroups within a marginalized group differently. So it affects women differently. It affects the LGBTQ community differently. It affects uh, children differently than it affects adults. So it affects people in ways that 
can't really just be like, well, colorism acts this way or colorism acts that way because we know that's not true. Also, uh, this is just like the reality of us talking about intersectionality and it gives us a deeper understanding of how colorism really functions in the real world. So in order for us to effectively engage in the conversation, we have to just kind of like lay that foundation. But today I choose principally to focus on the way that colorism affects darker or dark-skinned black women. I felt that we needed a stage and we needed a space to really talk about this. Um, Far too often when this conversation is had, it turns into literally light skin versus dark skin. And it turns into, you know, who was bullied the more, whose feelings were hurt the most. And I think that it doesn't do us a lot of justice to talk about it that way, because we have to acknowledge that feelings, why they should never be dismissed, why they should, you know, never be dismissed or diminished or, sorry, diminished. um, It's systemic in a lot of ways. Like when you look at the statistics, darker skinned people have less educational and employment opportunities. Our health is not as good as people who are lighter or just in general, the people who oppress us, our health is not as good as theirs. We don't have as many medical, um, we don't have access to like good health care. We don't have access to mental health care. We just overall are criminalized at higher rates. Our rates of poverty are much lower. And I mean, when you look at demographics, it's usually the darkest people within a society, within a culture who suffer the most. And so I think colorism is something that has to be talked about especially through the lens of like capitalism and patriarchy and how it really functions. So the first question I pose to the group is, what do you think the origins of colorism are? And how does the proximity to whiteness play a principal role in perpetuating colorism? Whoever wants to dive in first, take it away. Oh, this is uh, Kendriana here. Um, I'll go first. Um, As you said, I definitely agree. Um, White supremacy is such a large part of it. Um, and I, when you gave us that question, I was just thinking about, you know, what is the origin? And I thought about, uh, Paula Giddings and when and where Mm -hmm. I enter, uh, which y'all have probably read. And in that book, she just talked about how, uh, white supremacy is a means to sort of perpetrate classism. Absolutely. It's motivated. It's motivated by capitalism. It's motivated by manifest destiny, this, um, continued, um, part of the white legacy to continue to just acquire property and acquire space and acquire ownership over people and things. And um, one of the ways they need to do that, is, or one of the ways they've done that is by through free labor, you know, and it's kind of like, well, who's going to do the free labor? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you look at um, a lot of the um, spaces in Europe, um, if we go way back, and, you know, sort of the monarchy and and they kind of already had this setup where there was this very upper class and this very lower class. And those lower class people got tired of not being able to move up in society. And they said, well, we need to make our own thing and, and we need to set up our upper class and our lower class. Well, who's going to be the lower class? And I think that's where colorism um, and racism really came into play. Mm-hmm. OK. Well, I guess I can speak now. This is uh, Foe. And um, some notes that I took, well, what I was thinking was that colorism stems from, of course, the enslavements of Africans in America and um, other locations of the transatlantic slave trade, stopping points of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, it's justification for the dehumanization of black people and other people who did not look like uh, those that were enslaving them. And I also thought of like a modern origin or one of the modern roots of colorism is this fetishization of people that don't fit the set categories of race. So if people don't fit the set category of uh, 
white, black, um, Indian, whatever these set categories are, people that move apart from those categories, there's a need uh, for the fetishization of these people. Um, and it perpetuates colorism to the extent that these people are thought of as something different, something new, something wonderful. So they're placed above people that may fit certain categories that have uh, a distance from whiteness, like uh, black people or darker skinned Indian people or dark, darker skinned um, Chinese people or whoever they may be. So I'll explain it the way I wanted to, but that's what I was thinking. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Okay. So just to piggyback a little bit off of what Fo said, this is Keita speaking. Um, I do actually have a quote I wanted to start with. And it says, if you're black, stay back. If you're brown, stick around. If you're yellow, you're mellow. If you're white, you're all right. Mm-hmm. And so that was a quote that my grandma shared with me when I told her I would be speaking about colorism and then my experience um, being a darker skinned black woman. And so she said, and my grandma, just to give a little context to you all and then to whoever may be listening, is very, very fairly Mm light-skinned. And she shared that this quote was told to her as a child. Mm -hmm. She has a dark-skinned older sibling. And when I thought about this, I thought about how they were very much children at a time when slavery was very much a thing in America. And that how it has an effect on their relationship now. And so I thought about how, to me, or at least my understanding, is that the roots of colorism go back to slavery. Mm -hmm. I think we could all agree. Um, And then how the proximity to whiteness right now would be literally anything. Like in any situation, um, colorism still exists because of like social media or the ads or media in general. Mm -hmm. So that was just my understanding. Okay, so I'll go ahead and answer now. Um, so I think colorism, colorism is something that just historically, when I first started really understanding what colorism was, this was like in high school, middle school. Um, what I first learned it to be outside of, because my introduction to colorism came from the black community, from, you know, the light skin versus dark skin, uh, house Negro versus field Negro. And I mean, here in America, when you talk about colorism, you can't deny the fact that colorism with African-Americans and people who are African who have been colonized and oppressed by Europeans uh, stems from this idea that if you were lighter, you were safer. And so lighter slaves got to work in the house. And a lot of the time that's because they were either related to the master in some way or they they were his actual direct children. And then, you know, like uh, field slaves were in the field working in the fields. But a lot of that actually has history and like labor. And so you look at like even the Bible, um, People who were fair-skinned were considered to be richer, more uh, prosperous, more well-off because they were lighter. You could tell they weren't outside working, doing hard manual labor. Mm. And so people who were dark were the workers and they were the people who were more equipped to go outside and, you know, do the hard labor and pick cotton and do like farm work and manual labor, that, that type of thing. So here in America, when we talk about black people, we have to absolutely talk about, uh, slavery and then the fetishization of people who are lighter, especially when we talk about women, because I think a lot of colorism comes from the fact that white people had never actually seen black women, but then to see a black woman who's light, but she's black, but she's light, but she looks white, but she's (laughs) black. And so there's like this like conundrum, like, what do I do? Uh Should I be attracted to her? Or should I like hate her? Because I really don't know what to do. And then, you know, things like the one drop rule. So, I mean, colorism, if you look at our legal history, colorism and racism Anytime you want to know anything about a society, look at their laws and you can look at our laws. And like at first, you know, 
black and white people were intermarrying, having kids together. But then around mm, like the second generation of slavery, they realized, oh, well, if he has a white father or a white mother, we can't exactly like enslave them because they're half white. So we need to make up this rule. Like if they're mm-hmm. one drop, if they have one drop of Negro blood, then they're actually black. And so colorism definitely plays a part in that too. And so I think uh, here in America, slavery we talk about our specific community and we talk about how it affects us even today. Um, I mean, it was a tool used against us to divide us and to make us hate ourselves and to make certain people within our, our racial group think that because they were lighter and because they had more white blood, that they had more privilege and they should have more privilege and they should be held at a higher standard or higher esteem. All right. So we can go ahead and move into our next question. So social media my favorite topics. <laughs> Social media. Yes. So, <laughs> Social media plays a pivotal role in both combating colorism and perpetuating it. Black women now more than ever have a level of visibility that we've never had before. We're being acknowledged as the people who principally create social media content and set trends. Literally, we are like lighting up the damn world. Like social media is our shit. Like any right. of these urban trends, I say urban, I don't even like that word. Any of these <laughs> trends like makeup, uh, YouTube, like that's, that's us. That's Phrases. all the way us. Yes, all of it. Mm, that's yeah. all, like all of it has origins within black culture. So we see these hashtags like Black Girl Magic, Carefree Black Girl, Team Natural, an array of other hashtags that celebrate black beauty, which I love, by the way. But uh, we have to critically dissect who gets to be carefree, who gets to be magic, what type of natural hair is actually accepted? Um, which type of, you know, what type of black woman is celebrated? And who gets this privilege of being the spokesperson or the face of Team Natural or Black Girl Magic or Carefree Black Girl? And, you know, what do these women look like? Like, ultimately, what do they look like? Um, who gets the privilege of falling into these categories? Anyone want to? a lot. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> wanted to, um, I really appreciate that question. I like that question because... I think on an individual level, um, everyone feels like they could participate and be black Mm -hmm. girl magic and things like that. Um, I see a lot of people that don't fit a lot of societal norms, uh, African-American women that do that post hashtag black girl magic, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they're darker skin or whether they're full figure. So on an individual level, I think everybody feels encouraged to participate. As they should. Right. Yeah. I think once the problem comes into play when. There's capitalism. Yes. When capitalism Marketing. Comes, yes. When capitalism comes into play, that's when the problem is uh, sparked up. Because then you'll see that you'll see mostly uh, lighter skinned women with a looser curl te- texture representing the natural hair movement. Or you'll see um, if there is a darker skinned woman or a brown skinned woman, oftentimes she has to be thinner. She has to be a very, very small modelist body type. Like if I want to, if you want to say uh, Target, for example, in their representation of uh, darker skinned women, these women have to be very, very thin. And oftentimes uh, agencies don't like to use African-American models. They'll use African models. Mm-hmm. So there's even that, that separation there in terms of whose color is accepted. Oftentimes the color that's accepted is the people that are exoticized more and that might be Africans. Yeah. Um, or also, it may also be because of that that desire uh, within some circles to continue to look down on African-Americans and not even um, look at the beauty of their features, which are very similar, if not the same, than a lot of African people currently. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, social media is for everybody to the extent of once capitalism gets in there, when people want to advertise their product, then you just see plus-size women 
darker-skinned women, oftentimes women that don't have really long hair or really don't have the perfect Kim Kardashian figure or whatever mm-hmm. else, they just they disappear because they're not a part of what's the most marketable to the masses. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sis, you said it all. You really did. Yes. <laughs> you said all of it. <laughs> I think you really did. Um, if you did, y'all want to go ahead or... Yeah, um, uh, Kendriana here. Um, I I agree with a lot of what you said, especially the bit about um, just um, the exoticizing certain uh, types of Mm -hmm. Black women. Um, Which is a form of exploitation when you really think about it. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Um, Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that the movements online are really great. I think that they've been great for... um, I don't think that it really translates much to real life. Um, I'm not really seeing all the dark skin yeah. love out in these streets. I'm <laughs> yeah. just going to say it like I'm just yeah. saying. And I um, I think that it's a decent start and it's been able to create a lot of safe spaces for black women and, and dark skin women. But I don't really feel like it's totally inclusive. And I think you mentioned a little bit of that. I don't think it's totally inclusive to uh, trans women and trans mm-hmm. femmes. I don't think it's totally inclusive to full-figured women, gender non um, gen- gender non-conforming folks, um, or disabled femmes as well. Um, and also, when I look at it, I kind of feel like it's kind of you mentioned that that part about capitalism. I kind of feel like it. You have to be costumed a little bit. Mm-hmm. You as at least for black women, especially for dark skinned black women. I feel like for lighter skinned women and white women, they get to exist on this spectrum where you can be androgynous or you can be quirky or you can All be the it. girl next door or mm-hmm. you can be, you know, you can be natural. You can be more into natural or meta things, whereas um, what I have seen with uh, dark-skinned black women is you have to be costumed from the the full, which is there, there's nothing wrong with that. And I can I you know I do that sometimes too. But the full makeup and the full dramatic hair and even the dramatic you know sometimes an accent like I mean a fake accent like just the full just this full um, this costume looked and I I don't think it's very fair especially we can when you compare it to um, you know what is available to. Uh, women who are not black and are not dark skinned. Um, also, just to, um, you know, like what you said earlier with these exoticized looks, it, I do feel that it's a very like Grace Jones esque, mm-hmm. very deep dark skin, Thank very, you, very thin, <laughs> very, very, <laughs> very thin, you know, just that that look, you know, and and um, I, I don't think that the around the way girl, you know, the around yes. the way African-American girl is is getting the same kind of shine that we deserve. Or I just think that it's just online. You know, we're we're confined to sort of being Instagram models or, you know, the bodies that we have and everything. But I don't think it translate. I don't think it translates outside of those online spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And can I can I say something really quick? I think I think too. Another thing that bothers me on social media is that oftentimes uh, darker skinned women are not acknowledged unless they have like a really like like a shape, honey, like a real shape. <laughs> it's like otherwise they're oftentimes overlooked. If you're if you're thinner or if you're or if you're um, full figured, unless you have like this perfect figure eight. And you you got like a big afro and you got a mama Africa look going on. I don't know if y'all know what I'm talking about. What the thing that I you know that slang term hotel. The thing that <laughs> the type of the type of pictures that you'll walk into their home and you'll see all on the wall. Like you 
know, you got to be laying with lions or something Girl. in order for people to acknowledge sometimes in for people to to grant a lot of likes or even acknowledge the presence of this picture of a beautiful uh, darker skinned woman. She has to be exoticized so much so and just I don't know. It's 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 wild. It is. Yeah, I feel you. I, I do. I feel like it's like you have to have that. You have, I don't. What's the word for it? Not trope. But you have to have like a a, a thing, a gimmick. You have to have a, a gimmick. That's yeah. the word. You have to have a gimmick. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what what did you all? I don't know. What did you all think of that woman? That uh, she uh, she had like a, I guess the natural hair, and she took a picture with uh, that brand. Everybody was talking J. about J Crew. Yeah, J Crew. That J Crew picture. I was thinking about a lot of things in terms of colorism <laughs> and hair, and can we just be ourselves? This is what you were talking about earlier about black women being able to be relaxed. And I was torn. I was torn about that photo. Hmm. <laughs> I took a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. That's how you feel. I just took a deep breath. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get into that. That's on, that's on the list. It's <laughs> on the list. It's on the list of things to talk about because, yeah. <laughs> needs to be talked about. Keita, did you want to contribute anything? Um, so I was just going to contribute on the specific um, hashtag that you threw out. So I thought about the Black Girl Magic, Carefree Black Girl, and then Team Natural. And then I thought about myself, and then I looked around the room. And so I saw um, the three of you who fit the mold of what natural is, and then I thought about my own hair, who, you know, which is straight, but also natural. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about how that also, um, in a way, is the perpetuation of colorism. And then, I mean, it just it just really is like, if you're not natural in this way or the way that we perceive natural to be, then we're going to push you to the side. And then mm-hmm. also being a darker woman and then saying, oh, I'm natural, but then your hair is like that. It's like, no, mm-hmm. no, you're not. And then thinking about carefree black girl, but then also thinking about how you don't, you can't necessarily be the carefree black girl if you don't meet the other hashtags. So the team natural or the black girl magic, but I'm too dark for that black girl magic. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'm not dark enough for the black girl magic because I'm not African, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we all, Mm -hmm. or I won't say we, because I don't want to speak for anyone else, but that is what people fantasize, right? It's like, oh, the African model, She's her skin is beautiful because mm-hmm. it's dark versus just an African-American woman who is dark. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So um, I really, this is probably my favorite question, so we're going to spend some time on this. <laughs> but um, I remember when these hashtags, like we were all old enough to remember when this came to prominence because us having such a, you know, there's such a large presence on social media has not always been the case. Us having this type of leverage and this type of autonomy to really be in control of the kind of images we put out, which Instagram drives so much, social media in general, but Instagram drives so much because it's visual and people can actually post pictures. You can hashtag them the way you want. You can caption the picture however you want. And that is a level of power that I don't think Black women have had access to before now. Like before now, um, you know, if you saw a black woman, even now, I think I was thinking to myself and I got so sad and I was like, you know, who are like the big black stars? Who are the big black Mm -hmm. celebrities, like the big black female celebrities? And I was like, Beyonce, Rihanna, Nicki Minaj. Mm-hmm. Like Cardi B, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. But she does. But then, like, there's this thing, and I mean, we 
That's a whole different podcast right. episode. Right. We talk about uh, the anti-blackness uh, right. that exists within other communities and like how they're very much black, but very much cannot admit it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's one of those things where I thought about that and I thought, you know, over the past couple of years, I've continuously been running into articles that question, well, who gets to be carefree? Mm-hmm. Who gets to be black girl magic? And I'm like, well, damn, like, you know, we're seeing all these like high tech, high quality pictures of all these girls and like, six inch long nails and neon colored wigs. And I'm like, well, damn, I'm like, that's the hood bitch that started that before anybody else. Yeah, right, right, like, right. And no one is giving them credit, which boils down to like, you know, it's the same thing with cultural appropriation. Like they've been doing this, but they were too hood for y'all. Mm-hmm. They were too loud. They were too aggressive. And so this, the very people that invented this aesthetic, this carefree black girl, black girl magic aesthetic are not getting any credit and they're not getting any love for the fact that they're the people who really put this out there. They're the ones that we have to thank for the fact that like we can do this and we have a model to look back on like Around the Way Girl, like that song by Elo that shit is real. Mm-hmm. Like, he's yeah. talking about the original like carefree black girl. Right. So I'm like, you know, the fact that we can't give them credit for that and the fact that, you know, anytime you see we have to talk about the level of followers that a lot of black women have on uh, social media compared to other mainstream stars. And so I'm like, you know, like they can be and like, it really depends on what they look like. Like if you look at the Westbrooks, Crystal Westbrook is a really good example. She's somebody I would consider to be a carefree black girl. Right. But then also what does she look like? Mm. Right. Very, very fair. Very like traditionally, conventionally meets that Eurocentric standard of beauty. Whereas a lot of other black women who are doing the same things and have been doing them for much longer are not getting that same kind of love. And so it's one of those things where I have to think you, I mean, you really have to like critically look at the fact that not everyone, I'm glad you said that on an individual basis, on an individual level, anyone can be carefree. Mm-hmm. Anyone can be black girl magic. Right. Anyone can be team natural. They can claim these hashtags. They can actually be these hashtags. But who are the people who are actually getting like, and does it matter? Well, and I think at a certain, to a certain level, like the level of like acknowledgement you get for being yourself in some sense does kind of matter, especially when we're talking about marketing, because it's like, well, if you're putting money into the hands of people who didn't actually start this trend, then you're basically, once again, I mean, we have a long history and a long tradition and legacy of taking money out of the black community and putting it in places that, you know, we never see any of these assets. We never see any of this like actual capital. And so I just kind of think that's kind of ironic and really just, in my opinion, a little infuriating. I'm like, damn, like, the people who started this, they get no recognition, like, mm-hmm. and now it's a trend. Mm-hmm. And it's literally like you writing a project, somebody be like, oh, that's not good enough, failing it. Then somebody literally plagiarizing your shit, doing the same thing right. to a T and getting an A. Like, oh my God, that's so creative. That's so beautiful. Right. Why has no one ever thought of that? And I'm like, right. literally, like, wh- uh, who gets like who gets to be carefree? Like, who gets to be black girl magic? I mean, I feel like we all get, we all have a certain level of privilege. We're all like, you know, we're on Instagram, we're educated, we're, uh-huh. we get to, we get to embody those, uh, that ideal and that aesthetic of what it looks like and what it feels like to be black girl magic. But there are women who look just like us who are, you know, in the hoods of Dallas and South Dallas, who are in the hoods of Houston, the okay. hoods of like, yeah, uh-huh. like all over the, all over the country who are like, well, we've been doing this for years. We've been like literally replicating the same shit that y'all going to Urban Outfitters for and paying like hundred dollars, we can go to like the thrift store and buy that or the beauty supply and get that shit for less than twenty dollars. So I think it's like one of those things we you really talk about why is that not being given to them and at what level do we have to call out? And I don't want to say cultural appropriation. I'm like can can we appropriate our own culture? Right. But I'm like, is it ghetto culture? Are we appropriating ghetto culture? 
because not all black people even get to have like their hand in that because not all of us are from the hood. So I'm just kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't want to say appropriation, but I do want to say that it's a sign of internalized oppression. Yeah, like for sure. It's, it's a sign of those of behaviors that mimic the current uh, white capitalist patriarchy that's in place. Where so. we take we take from people who are less privileged, who have less uh, resources than we do, and turn it into something that benefits us, but doesn't doesn't benefit them, even though yeah. we took like credit for what they've already done. Yeah, and I, I'm happy that you mentioned that because it made me think of how, and I, I printed out the uh, while. Well, pasted the picture right here of, you remember when that girl, she was talking about how mixed women are hijacking the natural hair movement? Yes. And, okay, so it made me think of that because it made me think of how there are so many uh, mixed race uh, representatives of mm-hmm. the natural hair movement and many, so it, I think that, I believe that, that the natural hair movement started within a particular context. It was oftentimes for darker skinned women with yeah. kinkier hair. Yes, to, emp- to empower us. Yes, and so even though it touches other groups of black women within different contexts, I did understand where that person was coming from. So it's, it's that similar thing that you're talking about, where you see all these people profiting from the natural hair movement, but the people that started it right. aren't receiving a large percentage of the profit. Those darker skinned women with the kinkier hair. And it's largely because of not a, not only texturism, but colorism, because mm-hmm. they're, they're, them, them being seen as not appealing or, or not what uh, the larger part of the African-American community wishes to conform to. So it's just... And ultimately, I think, like, you know, what's acceptable because, and I think that's that article. And I remember when we came across the article that we were like, that was like two years ago when that article was first published. And it talked about, like, because literally the natural hair movement, it was created within a certain context for darker women with kinky hair. Mm-hmm. Hair like mine, like how mine looks when it's not locked. Like, it's like, it's very kinky. I, like, it's almost the point where, and I don't want to say I'm manageable because I don't, I'm very careful about the words. Mm-hmm. I use to describe my hair because I feel like that creates a whole different like set of issues and problems. But I think it was created for women who have like that really kinky, forcey hair who have always been told their hair is too nappy, their hair is too ugly. Right. Like, yes, it's not, no one's diminishing the fact that mixed race women or women who are lighter with looser curl textures have probably been discriminated against for their hair. But largely your hair is considered acceptable to a right. certain degree. Like you can wear your curly right. hair to work. Me wearing my afro, even now, I mean, certain jobs will not hire me because I have locks. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, someone actually just lost a Supreme Court case, and they told a woman that because she had locks, like— It was untamed. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. untamed, and that she stood, yeah. like, an employer her employer could actually choose to fire her because of that. Mm-hmm. And there's something to be said about my hair versus someone who has, like, these long curls, like, flowy curls, like, loose curls. Like, you're—if we're go, both going for a job— and they have to fill the position of a black woman, they're going to pick you over me right. because you're safer and to a certain degree and not saying that you choose to be that way, not saying that you choose to have that type of privilege, but you do have that privilege. That has That's something that has to be acknowledged. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, it's Kendriana. Um, I, going back to uh, some of the things you were saying, you were saying, you know, should we call it out? I say, yes, absolutely, we should call it out. And honestly, on a post- personal level, I don't feel like uh, when people sort of repackage or, or take or um, give themselves access to these things that we contribute, these things that we creative in all spaces, mm-hmm. not just beauty, but uh, literature, tech, Everything, all of our labor, when they take these things, um, I personally feel like it does not have the level of soul and perspective that it has when, when, oh, we, yeah. when we brought it to the table. Mm-mm. And not only that, but you ask, you know, um, are, are we taking um, 
ghetto or are we taking or repurposing ghetto culture? I would dare to say, is it ghettoized or is it ghettoized because we are black? Um, yes. yes. And because yes. we look a certain way. Right. Right. Is it, are, is it ghetto or is it ghettoized? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's not just that's not just you. You don't just see that in the black community. You also see it in the Latinx and indigenous community as well, mm-hmm. um, because it's this sort of standard. It, it goes back to white supremacy. It's the standard that, you know, white culture and the white people's ways of doing things is the correct way. And if you deviate from that, somehow it's the wrong way or somehow it's the ghetto way. Mm -hmm. But to me, when I'm looking, you know, when I'm looking at our art, when I'm looking at the way that we do makeup, when I'm looking at what we contribute to, especially in African-American culture, what we contribute to the global culture of people, everybody is trying to look like us. Everybody's trying to be like us. Really, I, I look at that and I don't say, oh, you know, it's ghetto. I say it's classic. It's classic mm-hmm. because everybody wants to do it mm-hmm. and everybody continues to try to do it. And, mm-hmm. and and time and time again, people reach back to what we've done or what, you know. And then not only that, but we continue to remix it. Mm-hmm. We continue to make it our own. We continue to be, especially as black women, on the front lines of these things. For sure. And I think you said a really, like you said something really uh, profound when you said it's really only ghetto when we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so like it's, it, which is like, I mean, that kind of just goes back to what I was saying about cultural appropriation. Like, you know, Kylie Jenner could put on, you know, Oops. a teal, I don't even like mentioning her damn name, a teal wig or, you know, right. anyone who fits that Kylie Jenner aesthetic can do the same thing. But the minute, and they're like, you know, it's trendy, it's fashionable. Like they'll put her, they'll do an entire like editorial about her in Vogue because mm. she has an a teal wig. But if a black woman does that, and we've been doing that, right. then it's ghetto. And it's ghetto because of our skin color. And it's because, I mean, or and class, then, and class, and then like yeah. we need to look at class and skin color because like poverty is really only associated with dark skinned black women. Right. right. Like light skinned right. black women are always depicted as educated, as they're you know, working on it. Yeah. They're, they're getting they're it together. The, they're yeah. getting it together. Figuring it together. <laughs> so like we're, we're like, oh, there's the well, there's, you know, the dark ass welfare queen with her ghetto ass wig and her, you know, her mm. 12 illegitimate children living out the system, which I mean, all of these are just like myths of white supremacy that have been perpetuated to black black women to like demoralize us, just, you know, basically discredit us, make us look like, you know, the scum of the earth. But I mean, I think you really said something really profound when you said it's only ghetto when it's us. And it's ghettoized because they look at us and have a perception. You about to say something. Yeah, so I thought about the show Girlfriends, as Mm -hmm. y'all were talking about, like, is it ghetto or is it ghetto when we do it? Because I thought about Maya and Lynn. Yes. Mm. So by all means, both of them were carefree (laughs) black girls. And they were both black girl magic, but like Lynn was just finding herself. But then Maya she was, was an intellectual. Just, right. Yes. She, was a, free, she, she was, was a free thinker and an artist and a creative. And, you know, her hair could be whatever way and she could be whatever way. But then to Maya, it was like, no, you need to mm. go get a, a good job. What was Maya's job? What, she, she was she like, was like uh, a, a Jones paralegal or yeah. Yeah. something like that. Yeah, something like that. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but like, she very much had to like fit into this box. Like, you need to speak this way. Like, turn that hood off when you go into work or when you're in conversations, but then it can come back out. Mm. 
And that speaks to what you were saying about class. Like, Lynn had five postgraduate degrees. Right. No job. My, no job. Mine is a receptionist, you know, like taking care of her family right. and everything. But because she was awesome. she's so educated, she gets to exist in this spectrum where it's like, well, I'm just... I'm free to sleep around and it wasn't like that. Yes. Like she routinely Uh talks about group sex and like Maya couldn't do that. No. If Maya did that, then you're going to be like, oh, she's going to catch AIDS. You know, those those blacks carry AIDS. Those black women. She already has a son and just, yeah. Yeah. It would have been, it literally would have been a shit show had she done the same things. And like, it boils down to colorism. And you can bring it to Tony as well. Yeah. Right. Tony. Oh my! Who who was dark skin? Tony had a lot, right. a lot to unpack. A lot. And I don't think she did, but a lot. <laughs> I, I would be interested to see like who's like written about this show like in a in the way that it needs to actually like they're doing like mm-hmm. really deep and thorough character analysis mm-hmm. of all the women on the show. All right, <laughs> let's move into gender. Ooh. Okay, so often we talk about colorism amongst Black women. We frame that conversation around what Black men uh, and men in general find desirable and appealing. How does gender intersect with with colorism? Excuse me. How does patriarchy at large work to promote and perpetuate clashing stereotypes about dark-skinned women and exploit our bodies? It's a lot. Take your time. (laughs) Oh, well, what I was thinking about when I read this question, the first thing I thought about is how, oh my goodness, I have to make sure that I don't fetishize my boyfriend. Because he's darker. So when I'm thinking about how uh, gender and color overlap, oftentimes I think a lot of black women, they look at a darker man. And unfortunately, because of internalized oppression, they may go along with those stereotypes of a darker man is stronger. Mm -hmm. A darker man is more of a, he's a man's man, whereas a lighter man is more effeminate Mm -hmm. and uh, more pretty boy and things like that. And, you know, so that's, and that's not just limited to women. You even see things on social media where men are saying that about other men or in person. You, you hear, uh, uh, comedians joke about that sort of thing. You hear Charlamagne the Guy joke on uh, um, what's the other co-host name? On uh, Envy. Envy. Talk yes. about DJ Envy all the time and talk about how DJ Envy, oh, just because you light skin and all this other type of stuff, you know, those light skin tears or whatever the jokes are. But, you know, oftentimes with uh, within the black community, unfortunately, because of internalized oppression, there's a thought process of a darker man being stronger And even it's portrayed that way in media uh, outside of the black community that darker men are stronger, more acceptable. uh, Really? A handsome book. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, mean, like, when I say acceptable, I mean in the sense of sexual objectification. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Yeah, this this Mm -hmm. is a handsome book, you know. Yes. Uh, So what what kind of stereotypes? I want to, like, keep you on this train. Uh, when When I was talking about this specific question, like, how does that work with women, though? Like, what type of stereotypes? Because I... We gonna dive into this because there are like a plethora <laughs> of stereotypes about dark skinned women and light skinned women. Like, oh wow, that shit is like oh, very wow. prevalent like, and per- pervasive on social media. Like, think about what Kodak Black was saying. Oh, like, um, a dark skinned man, a dark skinned woman. That she's harder to break down. She's harder. She's harder. I guess she's harder to deal with emotionally. Whereas a light skinned man, she light skinned woman. I keep saying, man, Lord have mercy. A light skinned uh, woman. She's easier to break down. She's softer, kinder. So there's just a stop process about darker women that we're more masculine. So it's like some of the emotions that were thought of with uh, emotional traits that were thought traits that were thought of with darker skinned men are associated with darker skinned women. We're more masculine, tougher, meaner, this, that, and the third. So yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you or anything, but I feel like that goes back to that original discussion about the origins of colorism Mm -hmm. and sort of the structure 
of um, colorism as a means to perpetrate capitalism and white supremacy. I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that um, oppressing black women first, particularly dark skinned women first, is like the cornerstone. Yes. It's the cornerstone of this whole fucking operation. It's the cornerstone. If you're not oppressing, if you're not oppressing black women, you know, if if black women have equity, not only um, within our communities, but outside of our communities, then then black children have equity. Mm-hmm. And if black children have equity and equality, then um, black people have equity and equality. And, and if black people have equity and, and equality, then uh, black skin is not um, weaponized and black skin is not denigrated. Mm-hmm. And and if, if that's the case, then then who do you oppress? Well, who, who does anymore. the free? Who does the free labor? Mm-hmm. Who does the free labor? Um, it, it, it. That's why at the. That's why we have to start. We have to start with dark skinned women. We have to start with black skin, black women. We have to start with um, black uh, trans women because that we need to start there because there's no trickle down. Mm-hmm. It's not going to trickle down if you don't start with black women. If you don't start with us. Um, you have to get to the very, very root of right. what patriarchy finds the most, like what patriarchy oppresses the most. Right. And I mean, not to be like in the oppression Olympics, but like, I mean, we're women. And then when you talk about trans black women, they exist under so many different umbrellas that it's like you have to literally like the intersectionality, you have to literally tackle every single thing. And if you're not tackling every single thing, then they're really like, I mean, the, you said it perfectly. There is no trickle down. It's not, oh, well, we'll give, which is why I hate traditional liberal feminism because it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. When right. we talk about white politics, feminism. yeah, when we talk about like, and I say white feminism, I don't have to explain that. I'm not going to. Y'all know what the fuck I mean when I say white feminism. And so when we say that, <laughs> it's one of those things where just because we know the way politics work, I don't trust anyone working to dismantle oppression from any other angle than by addressing black women first. Yes. Because... Yes. It's one of those things where you're just like, you're going to, at some point, you're going to bargain. You're going to do this and you're going to do this, which is why anytime like Susan B. Anthony is brought up, I'm just like, I gag. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this right. is the same woman who like was willing to canoodle with like racists. When I say racist, this is not, these are people who literally like literally <laughs> owned slaves like maybe mm-hmm. 20 years earlier and were fighting tooth and nail for their right to continue enslaving black people. And so when you would, when I talk about her and I think about the fact that she was willing to like bargain with these people, like there is no bargaining when it comes to equity and justice. Like there's right. none. There's absolutely none. So I'm right. glad you said that. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just like, <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. That, you're, that's definitely on point. And um, uh, you mentioned black men in particular, and I have a few thoughts on that. Girl. Because I, and they're and they're gays as well. I I sometimes I feel like when we talk and when we have the discussion about anti-black misogyny mm-hmm. and um, when we talk about uh, colorism um, within this within the spaces of are are impacted by black women. Sometimes I feel like black men don't walk into the room until we start talking about preference, until we start talking Mm -hmm. about dating, until they can come in and say, oh, what is my preference? Like, I hate that fucking word. Like, don't say that shit to me. I hate that word. I'm at this this point as a feminist, and it was hard for me for a long time because I was like, 
okay, at the same time, I want to unpack this, but it's not my fucking job to unpack it. And I'm at this point at, as a feminist where I really don't give a fuck. I don't care. I do not care. Yes, it matters. But honestly, I'm at the point where I don't care what your preference is. Let's get that off the table. Let's talk about my humanity. Mm-hmm. Let's talk yeah. about me getting equal pay. Let's talk about, you know, um, oppression within our homes. Let's talk about creating space, uh, safe spaces for black women and girls. Let's talk about domestic violence. Let's talk about sexual ab- abuse against black women and girls. I'm done talking about who you want to date and what your preferences are. Yes, that is that is is fucked up. Yes, it is. It is. But um, I just I, I, I'm tired of having a discussion. Let's move on. If that's what you want to do, fine. I, I will point out that, you know, a preference in dating is it is racism. It is internalized racism, because as black men, when you go go to get a job, if they say they prefer a white person, are you going to be like, oh, well, that, that's cool. That's your preference. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> No, right. you're not going to do that. It's mm-hmm. racism. Call, call it what it is. You know, call it what it is. Um, and, and that's pretty much, you know, where I really wanted to go with that. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm tired of having this discussion about your gaze. I, I'm ready to move on from that as yeah. a feminist. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'll go ahead and let you answer, Keita, then I'll, I'll circle back. Oh, in. you can go ahead. Um so this question, uh, this is what annoys me the most about when we have this conversation, aside from the fact that, uh, especially amongst women, it turns into like who was bullied the most and who was mistreated by their family, which I said should never be diminished. But when we talk about uh, colorism, like you cannot not talk about the systemic effects. And gender is one of those things that very much operate, operates under like this umbrella where when we talk about colorism, it's like, oh, well, well, men don't like men. Men like lighter women and like they prefer like this, this idea of preference, which I, I really like. And I can't say this again. I'll say it. I said it earlier. I'll say it again. I really fucking hate that word because what that does is it, it's like, oh, it takes, it takes someone's choice. And I'm like, oh, well, that's just my choice. Well, why do you have that choice? Right. Why are you inclined to feel that way? And not saying that you would like you, I don't, I mean, honestly, at this point, I'm at a point now where I don't really care what your preference is, but can you actually have the conversation about why colorism exists and why it's so detrimental to the black community and why it's so detrimental to anyone who has to experience the effects of colorism, no matter how light they are, no matter how dark they are. And so when I made this question, um, I I really feel like it's important for us uh, to talk about why it shouldn't be framed around what men find desirable. Because if we're talking about my skin keeping me from being able to have educational op- um, employment opportunities. And we're talking about the fact that my skin puts me in a position to be criminalized at much higher rates, mm-hmm. that I'm not going to have the same access to healthcare, that I'm not going to have the same access. Just honestly, like, I mean, just everyday visibility in the media, because that's important, especially for children, especially for young children growing up to see someone that looks like them. And we're talking about the fact that I don't have access to that as a darker person, especially as a darker skinned woman, a darker skinned woman. I don't think it's fair just to talk about colorism through what men find appealing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's fair to talk about colorism in the context of like, well, this happened to me. These people, this specific group picked on me when I was a child. So that's why I feel a certain way about it. But I wanted to talk about... Um, some of the stereotypes that I see perpetuated by black men mm-hmm. about black women. Because when we talk about, 
and you said this when we talk about like anti, <laughs> like this anti, like this misogynology, when you talk about like this anti-black woman hate that often comes from black men and these ideas, like I really hate Kevin Hart and here's why. <gasps> because <laughs> he makes it, like they're like, and I mean, he's like just one of many, but like um, he has this joke where he's like, well, you know, darker skinned women don't have good credit. And this um, shit exists yeah. all the time or like darker girls are nicer. And I found like, I love Tumblr because Tumblr is like just literally like this open book of like all this feminist knowledge that you cannot find anywhere else on the internet, period. And so it's one of those things where it's like you see black men fetishizing black women because they think black, they are not black women, dark skinned black women because they think we don't like ourselves. And the reason we're nicer is because like we're more desperate for their attention. So it's like, and well, I'm I not know. Nice. And I'm not, and I don't have yeah, to I'm be. Not. Right. <laughs> and I'll ignore your text message too, nigga. I don't give a damn. <laughs> so it's one of those things that's just like, I really, I hate the way that colorism is perpetuated in that way. And that, you know, like uh, the light skinned girls with the 500 unread text messages because she can do that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, shit, I can do that too. Right. And she can be, she could be nice to your ass too because she might be, she may be desperate. So why is that? specific t- stereotype pushed onto dark-skinned black women and like what it boils down to like what's desirable and who's considered like more desirable I'm like you know it just I we really have to dissect that and we're gonna come back to this I'm gonna let you because I see you girl you over there you like well, uh, no, the, the only point that I've really been like sitting over here thinking about in this whole thing has been like the ways that darker skinned black women are catcalled, right? Yes. So the catcalling yes. is like, oh, hey, chocolate. So I got or, called a chocolate bunny one time. Yeah, like a damn like, chocolate Easter bunny. It's, 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 it's things like that. It's like, oh, chocolate. Or hey, darkness. And you're... Like, <laughs> dark, and, dark and lovely. Like, you, yeah, like, what is that? You don't hear anyone else like, oh, hey, yellow. Or, like, <laughs> What? That's true, though. So I, I really thought about that, and I thought about it because it, to one point, like you were saying earlier, folks, um, darker-skinned black men are overly sexualized, right? It's like, oh, look at that nice chocolate. Like, he is so whatever. Right. Yeah, like, he probably has everything. a big, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. and then that. to that same point, it's like the darker-skinned black women, like, oh, you you're such a pretty chocolate until you curve me. Right, like you don't text me back, and then you're no longer then beautiful at all. You were yeah. lucky to have, really right? Anyway. You were lucky to have even gained this man's attention. Right. In like the first place. I was trying to do you a favor. Yeah, no. yeah. And you will not believe how often that shit happens in real life. True, in real life, <laughs> real. like yeah. true. Life. Yeah, something else I wanted to point out really quickly is that oftentimes uh, preference. The reason why preference can be so important is because when you think about the intersectionality of being a woman and a dark skinned black woman. Uh, men can think to themselves that your 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 importance is in how you are attractive to them, which so, is patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like your right. your whole entire importance is in your your desirability to them. So mm-hmm. your humanity may not even be considered because uh, you're you're not desirable to them in the first place. So it's like, oh, we're not going to talk about the problems with you in education and being a dark skinned woman, or the problems with you in incarceration right. and being a darker skinned woman because you're not attracted to me in the first place. So it's like, I'm not checking for you. So I'm not really going to sit and listen to what you have to say in the first place. So whereas with lighter skinned women, they they may be being sexually objectified, but we're all, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a saying like, uh, I remember my freshman year of college, the, like the very first course I signed up to take, I was so excited about it was women's studies. 
And there was a quote in the book that said, and it was just, it's, this was talking about white women in comparison to black women. And it said, the white woman's like the dog. You'll let the dog sleep on your bed. You'll hit it occasionally when it's mis, when you know it's misbehaving. You love the dog, but you know the dog is not human. The black woman is like the mule. You can mm. beat the mule. You can put the mule on the field. You can work the mule for 12 hours a day. Mm. And the mule, you know, you can break the mule. You don't really have to do a lot of maintenance on the mule, but it's an animal as well. It's not a human. So neither one is human. And this is kind of like the way I think about colorism as well, too. Like, at the end of the day, we're all being objectified uh, and oppressed. But one of us, because of the fact that we're considered a little bit more tame or... Um, I don't know, what's the word? Appealing. Appealing, attractive, attractive desirable. We're not uh, oppressed in the same way or as right. oppressed. And so when we talk about desirability, I'm glad that like we're even talking about it through this gaze. Have you guys been uh, like hearing about the New York stripper strike? And it's all about preference because it's like, well, right. Well, they prefer to have, you know, these more exotic looking, lighter uh, potentially Latina bartenders or, uh, and it's not about, you know, the black strippers stripping. It's like what they prefer. So we're just bringing what they prefer. And I'm like, no, what you're like, literally what you're doing is you're putting the dancers there and the dancers are like dancing. They're doing like, and like stripping is physical labor. Like, yes. I don't know if you've ever been to work. a strip club, but like, <laughs> or even a pole dancing class. Like, it's not easy. Like, this no, is an actual work. real life workout. And these women are doing this sometimes seven days a week to make, you know, ends meet for their family, for themselves, right. whatever the case may be. And so when you talk about preference, it's not fair to talk about that when you're literally talking about money being taken out of, like, literally, you're taking money out of someone's hand. This right. is how they survive based off of what your idea of preference is. And so I just, like, I've been following this thing since it broke, and I'm just like, this is, like, some of the most interesting shit to, like, happen in a very long time because, like, once again, especially, and it exists, it exists within hip-hop culture, mm -hmm. which we can talk about. We have to talk about that. We're going to talk about that in a second, but, like, <laughs> what's what can be marketable, what's desirable, and you see, like, and even in music videos, even today, you see women who are exotified, who are fetishized, who are lighter, who are much lighter because that's what's considered to be desired by men and men are considered to be the primary consumers. So we have to go with the capitalists. We have to go with like the potential lies to make money and that's with the men. And literally like they were like, 50 Cent was in a club and he had to go pull the black strippers up to his VIP floor because even like the security, even though he said he wanted black strippers in his like dark women, like black women mm -hmm. in his, uh, his room, they were like, oh no, they kept sending up what they thought he would want or what they thought mm -hmm. he should want in, right. in a certain to a certain degree. You think that's so. what you want, but you haven't seen this one. Yeah. Right. Mm. So Ow. very <laughs> thoughts on that though. I mean, cause like <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I guess I could say that my thoughts on that are in what space can black women be dark-skinned black women be appreciated for their beauty? Mm-hmm. I just I mean, and even, even then you talk about like strip clubs, you know? Right. And like, well, how much agency, and that's really not even for us to decide. So I'm not, I'm not a stripper. Right. I'm not, a, I don't work in the sex industry, so I can't decide, I can't say, well, they're being objectified unless you personally feel like that. I can't even, I'm sure that objectification and exploitation does happen within uh, those settings. 
I can't personally say that's, you know, specifically happening to any given woman unless she says so herself. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, it's like even in the, even in the strip club where, you know, you're supposed to be seeing, viewing women as beautiful, black women can't even be viewed as beautiful there by their peers. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, in a place where sexiness is supposed to be in the air, and you can't even be amongst your own people and be thought of as fine as wine. So I'm like, where are you supposed to go? You know, like... Yeah. I think that... This is not slightly personal for me from the sense of that I have um, been a stripper because I've never been a stripper or anything like that. But just New York in particular, I kind of have some personal feelings about New York because every time I go to New York, I get discriminated against on the street or harassed or, you know, I deal with this brand of racism that I don't even have, that I have never seen before. I didn't see it until I went there. And I feel like uh, businesses and just uh, New York in general, I feel like the classism is so deeply ingrained there Mm -hmm. that places are notorious for excluding um, black folks notorious for school. They, you go to a restaurant, they won't even sit, seat you. So this didn't surprise me at all that they were doing this. And from what I've read, uh, this is only an issue in New York. You're not seeing this in strip clubs yes. in Miami. Yes. And they, they keep saying that. You're not seeing this in strip clubs in Atlanta. You're not seeing this in strip clubs in LA, yep. which is why I'm, I'm kind of trying to bring it full circle, which mm-hmm. is why I mentioned that about New York. Which are places um, that, are, that are considered, like, I mean, to me, like, I would think Miami, if I'm in my mind, if I'm in the mind of, like, you know, I want to go where the bad bees are. I'm not going to probably go to New York. I'm going to go to Miami or LA. And so I'm like, if it's not existing there, then what is it in particular about New York? Exactly. So it's, and from what I have seen going there and like, and you see you, I feel like now it's kind of being exposed because I feel like every week there is some restaurant in uh, New York, uh, particularly in the city where you see that they they haven't been treating black folks right or they're not seating black folks or they're not letting them stay inside of the, you know, stay and sit and eat and dine and things like that in peace. So this doesn't surprise me at all. What really, really is frustrating for me when I looked at this is they're not letting a lot of time. A lot of the times they have the bartenders dance. They're not letting the black girl. They're not letting the black girls dance. Right. And then on top of that, they're not letting the black girls bartend. And then they're so putting the stage. No they're putting the stages. And I, this is the, I've been to a lot of strip clubs, y'all. And I've never seen a damn strip club <laughs> that has a stage, a stage behind, behind the, the bar. bar. Behind the bar. So they're throwing money. You're dancing, trying Except to make your money. Really? They do. Okay. Yeah. I have to go to the sip and see what's popping. <laughs> but um, that's so, this is like I, when, I, when I was looking at the pictures on Instagram, I'm like, this is awesome. I've never even seen this where the stage is behind the bar. So if you're dancing, trying to make your money, the bartender is facing the people throwing your money. I was like, oh, thanks. The money's oh. falling right into the... And so I'm like, you're literally, yeah. they're making like, on top of what the fact that they're getting paid to bartend, they make tips from drinks that they sell. You're also taking strippers' money now. And the strippers happen to look a certain way and you happen. And the people that work with you that are bartending with you happen to look a certain way. And like Cardi B uh, was one of the first people to actually like publicly talk about this. And she mm-hmm. was like, they won't even hire black women in strip clubs. It's gotten to the point where like you have to literally be like, I mean, just don't look black. That's the job right. qualification. <laughs> don't be black. We'll hire you. So I'm just. Mm. Any other thoughts on that? There's <laughs> just so much to unpack there. Like, yeah. Um, all right. This question, Kita, I kind of want you to talk about this because okay. you do a lot of community activism. Um, 
especially from like a restorative justice uh, standpoint. So I'm going to do this question. I kind of want you to like lead us off. What does personal healing from colorism look like? What does communal healing from colorism look like? Is there truth in the idea that we must look within on the other side? How does this idea ignore the very real systemic effects of colorism? So it's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So um, let me just take it in pieces. Mm -hmm. So first, there was a question about what personal healing um, from colorism looks like. And so initially answering this question, I thought about like, oh, you need radical self-love, right? Mm -hmm. But then I thought about that's just not enough. Mm -hmm. Like, So then I tried to unpack the communal healing piece and tackling that with personal or combining them. And so I thought about um, the fact that I don't know how to say it without saying it, but I thought about the fact that just saying like, oh, dark skinned woman, you're beautiful just isn't enough. And so I think a lot of people like assume if we reaffirm and if we give compliments, then, you know, we're helping them to feel whole. But I think that we really, really have to go all the way back and go back to like childhood, because I think even the nicknames that we give to darker skinned children like have long term effects. And so I think that we have to think about those pieces as a community. I think that we also have to um, love each other and love each other unapologetically. If we're really going to be carefree black women, then we have to love each other. And that goes for men as well. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Can I speak on the question? Go ahead. Well, what I was thinking was, and so I'm I'm 25 years old now, and it took me degrees and a lot of time for me to actually get to a point where I feel a sort of healing from colorism. And still, it's an everyday practice to uh, give in to self-love. But uh, what really did it for me on an individual level was realizing that every person has a struggle of their own. Right. Every person has a struggle of their own, so I wouldn't want anybody's but my own unique uh, struggle as an individual. And I think oftentimes when you when you teach that to women as adults that have been through a lot because of colorism, it kind of helps shine a new light on things. I actually saw the story of Gia Casey, a, light, a lighter-skinned woman, uh, DJ Envy's mm-hmm. uh, wife, and somebody slit her face open because she was light-skinned. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I said, I don't want it. <laughs> I was like, I got my own struggle. Not saying that that's the struggle of every light-skinned woman, but I'm saying every person has their own individual struggle. And Whereas I used to have this mindset when I was a child that if you're lighter, your life must be easier. And even sometimes I have to catch myself thinking things when I see a lighter skinned person, like, oh, everybody probably thinks she's so beautiful. She could just wake up in the morning and go. Mm -hmm. But it's like, no, you have to have an individual understanding that every life has its own struggle and every struggle is unique and beautiful when you come out of a victorious in your own special way. And then on a communal level, I do think that those representations from the the natural hair um, ads and things like that from, say, a Camille Rose company, or it used to be Shea Moisture Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see... Rep- <laughs> when, you, when you see... Yeah, when you see those representations of a, a darker-skinned woman with 4 hair, a dark-skinned woman with a diff- with straight hair, with whatever type of hair, when you see those darker-skinned women, it's an affirmation of, of uh, how wonderful a darker skin, lighter skin, whatever skin tone, black woman... Uh, how an affirmation of how wonderful and beautiful we are, how how much value that we have. So when you get it from your community on a uh, playing ball in terms of capitalism, as well as from uh, people saying you're beautiful, you're a beautiful black woman, you're and 
getting rid of those, uh, some of those childhood uh, uh, scars that we have, then I really think that you can get to the root of undoing a lot of um, colorist uh, behaviors in society, as well as on an individual level, the pain that people feel. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I um, Adriana again. <laughs> um, okay, so just speaking about the communal piece. I actually decided after the elections last year, um, especially after seeing the breakdown of who voted for Hoomst, that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was going to fully divest. And I, I have done that. I, that's basically been, you know, that I was going to focus on issues impacting women of color, mm-hmm. um, more specifically uh, black women, especially trans black women. Um, and, and even more so myself, really, that's been what has been the, uh, lately. And honestly, uh, to be honest, I feel like as black women, we even we that people start using us for labor as black girls at such a young age. Yes. Right. That honestly, at 26, I feel like I've done enough and I feel like I have earned the right to focus on me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm doing. And it's been beneficial for me. And it's been an act of self-care. So when I look at the communal piece Peace, I don't really have much to say about that right now, um, except that I, I I do focus on being intersectional. Um, but other than that, personal healing uh, from colorism, for me, it does have to do with self-empowerment, but also empowerment um, of my sisters. Um, and that's platonically, but also as a queer Black woman, um, I'm pansexual. Um, it, for me, a lot of it has to do with uh, loving dark-skinned women romantically mm-hmm. and um, appreciating dark-skinned women romantically and looking at another Black woman and looking at another dark-skinned woman and appreciating things within her that I see within myself. Mm-hmm. That has been very, very healing for me. Furthermore, um, I also pray to a lot of Black goddesses. Yes. I pray to goddesses that look like me. Um, I, you know, I... I And I'm just speaking for myself first. I really got to the point where I was tired of looking at white gods and goddesses. I was tired of uh, praying to white men. Um, That's been incredibly healing for me on a personal level. Um, And also for me, it's been about, you know, just self-care and checking in with myself, taking inventory of the spaces that I occupy my relationships and the people that I occupy those spaces with. Um, and I, I look at it and I regularly go through and I clear out the bullshit. Honestly, I do, you know, every once in a while, I, 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 you know, I look at jobs. I look at, I recently, I recently this year, and it's been a real blessing for me. Um, in January, I let go of full-time corporate work and I've been working, uh, primarily freelance and it's been beneficial for me. I had to look at it and say, well, what are these corporate spaces doing for my personal well-being, and is it worth it? Um, one, they're not paying me enough anyway, because I'm a black woman. Um, is it the toll that it's taking on my mental health? Is it worth it? I got rid of that. Um, um, I was dating someone who wasn't all the way work- woke. I had to get rid of him. And <laughs> I was a whole boyfriend away, girl. <laughs> you know, I had, he, had to, he had to go, you know, and, and I do that on a regular basis. You know, I'm tired of uh, sitting around and taking these comments that, you know, I, I, whenever, whenever. I'm around people. I'm feeling bad. I'm like, why? Why do I feel this way? And it's been it's been so so empowering for me on a personal level. It really really has. It has impacted my soul and my spirit. And it's just it's it's been such a blessing for me. 
Um, I, you know, and I'm not really here anymore for, like I said, I feel like it's my right. I'm not really here for that kumbaya rhetoric of making it work and being a martyr. I'm not a martyr. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to, you know, put up with being, I'm not going to put up with this sort of uh, racially motivated abuse in my personal relationships just because other people feel that I should because it's the nice thing to do. I, I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice myself for that. I'm here to uh, be my best self and live my best life. Nice. All right. Um, what does personal healing from colorism look like for me? Uh, it's an ongoing process because I will be very honest and transparent about this. Anytime I feel like I've gotten to a place where I'm like, colorism doesn't personally affect me anymore. I see the way that it affects women who look like me that are far younger. And I know how detrimental that is because for such a long time when I was a child, I was very aware of the fact that I was dark skinned, uh, especially living in the South, uh, where I'm from, which is in West Texas. Um, <clears throat> it's just, it's so divisive when it comes to skin tone, not even necessarily race. When we talk about skin tone, as far as like the way that lighter children, I feel are often pitted against darker children and, and vice versa. And so it was one of those things where even today where I see colorism being perpetuated uh, against children and I see little girls that don't like themselves because mm -hmm. they're darker, that breaks a part of my soul. And especially I'm pregnant right now and I'm pregnant with a little girl. Hey. And so, yeah. So I often think about the fact, like I'm, I'm dark, her father is dark. And so I think about the fact that when am I going to have to sit her down? When is, when is she going to come to me and tell me this conversation about, or come to me like someone made fun of me because of my skin tone? What am I going to tell her? And am I going to tell her the same thing my mom told me? Well, you're beautiful anyways. Well, of course I'm going to tell her that, but that's not enough. Right. It isn't enough. And I don't know personally what I can say to her for that to be enough or to make that a reality for her. If it's going to be like this long experience that she has to go through where she has to like experience and feel some of the same things I have felt throughout my life, knowing that as a dark woman, the world doesn't, completely care about me. And right. as a woman, they don't care about me. As a black person, they don't care about me. And as a poor person, you know, they don't give a fuck about me. So I'm just one of, it's one of those things where I have to like really sit back and like, okay, well, what am I going to teach my daughter? How am I going to approach this conversation with her? And I do believe in radical self-love. I believe like, I don't believe that it's enough. I believe that it has to work in conjunction with us continuously combating these systems that take darker people and discard them and dehumanize them and just push them off to like the very, very like corners of society and tell them that that's where they're supposed to be and just relegates them to the lowest position. I feel like we absolutely, I feel like I have an, I have an absolute responsibility to in some way break that down. Now, am I going to, do I feel like it's my responsibility to give my entire self to that system? No, I don't. So when we talk about communal healing, um, what that looks like to me is me being a young black woman going and talking to young girls who look like me and being like, hey, mm -hmm. you are pretty. You are smart. Mm -hmm. And don't let anybody diminish you. Don't, anybody let, don't let anybody tell you that you aren't. Because to a certain degree, you have to believe that you are. To a certain degree, that you have to actually believe that you are pretty, that you are smart, and that you are capable of doing whatever the fuck it is you mm -hmm. want to do, no matter what that looks like, no matter where 
where it exists, on what spectrum it exists, you can be yourself and you need to know that you can do that. And that's what communal healing looks like to me. Um, I would also say, just to kind of add on to that, um, I like, I'm I'm, Paul, I'm part of the call-out culture. Like, I will call that shit out anytime I see it. <laughs> yes, name it. Yes, right. I will name it. Like, I'll call it out anytime I see it. Like, anytime I feel like it's in my face, I will call it out. And I will always do that from today forward until the day that I have no more breath in my lungs, I will continue mm-hmm. to call it out. Uh, what was the other part of that question? I think this is like a really long question. Uh, is there truth in the idea that we must look, with, look, is there truth in the idea that we must look within? Absolutely, but that's not enough. Like I say, and I, that's, that's the failing, I think, of uh, radical self-love is that it says love yourself and then it stops there. Right. And that's not enough. It's like love yourself, but then it's like, oh, well, that's it. Just love yourself and everything will be okay. Right. And if for some reason you don't love yourself, which is a very real reality for a lot of women, regardless of what they look like, mm-hmm. a lot of people, regardless of what they look like, if you don't love yourself, then that's, you know, well, I mean, that's why. That's why you're treated the way that you are. I mean, it's because you don't love yourself. And it's like, oh. no, like we exist in a world that consistently tells a certain type of person that looks a certain type of way that is assigned a certain type of gender mm-hmm. that they should not love themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And until we can actually adequately address that, adequately just admit that we have a system in place that is steadily working to dehumanize and degrade people, we can't really just, we can't principally and solely preach uh, radical self-love, which is not going to work. It's not going to work the way that it's supposed to. I love your communal response. I do. I like that. And I feel like part of the reason why I currently am at a place where I'm trying to find balance with that communal aspect um, and, you know, just just figuring it out, but also having such strong views about it is Mm -hmm. because I grew up watching my aunts and my grandma and my my grandmas and my cousins and just the older black women in my in my life put themselves last so often Mm -hmm. and just um, like you said, that that sort of work, that that mule just being these workhorses for everybody constantly and and being taken advantage of and uh, just putting all of their needs and their wants and their self-care last. I I, I watch that. I watch that so much. And that's why I really, really have a strong, a strong feeling of it. I think one of the things to look at when you look, when you talk about looking within, I think there's a, it's, there's a fine line between, you know, telling folks to do that self-work and also just making sure that they're not being blamed for the oppression that they experience. And not being blamed for the way they feel because of the oppression, which is the part that pisses me off the most, because so often when that conversation is had, it's like, oh, well, and I, anytime, oh my God, anytime I see this, and I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where uh, you continue, like we continuously see this. Well, you can't just talk about, like, there was an article and someone said that, you know, yes, black men marry black women, but they all look the same or they look <laughs> a certain way. And this is the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, let's talk about it. And the, so this woman was like, um, well, she wrote an article, she wrote an article in responses, and it was on, what was it on? What? The Shade Room? What was the Shade Room? I can't remember what uh, platform this was published on. But she was like, I'm just getting tired of black women, of darker black women telling lighter black women that they're, that they're not real black or that they're not black oh, enough. And I'm like, okay, well, 
baby. <laughs> You're, and it's not, it's not, this is the thing that people have to understand. Like, I think when that conversation is had and that phrase black enough, like you're not black enough. I don't like that. I'll right. for, I'll be the first to say that. I don't like that. Right. I think that it diminishes the very uh, different experiences, the very different ways that black can exist on a spectrum. But what it also ignores is when you call, when you say like, I don't like that, or I feel like black women should stop doing that. You're ignoring the fact that you have a certain degree of privilege because your skin is a certain tone. Right. And it, it ignores the fact that that's not what's happening. Like, that's not, we're not saying this to make you feel bad about the fact that you're light. We're right. saying this because, like, you need to be very clear and acknowledge the reality that darker women are treated a certain way and that we don't have the same access to things that you do. Mm-hmm. And that's just the truth. Like, that is the truth. Like, we don't have, I mean, even today, as a feminist, like, just the way that feminism has always, white feminism, well, marriage is a, is a broken institution. Some, I, I mean, I agree with that to some uh-huh. extent. Marriage is a flawed institution to some extent. It perpetuates, I mean, to a lot of extent, it perpetuates uh, the patriarchal system. But at the same time, I feel like as a black woman, well, shit, I've never had really had access to it in the first place. So right. if I choose to get married, that is my radical act of resistance. I fucking want to get married or I want to have a family or I want to do both. Or I, And I, right. as a woman, choice is agency. Right. And I should have agency to do whatever I want to do. So. Yeah. yeah, something else that I thought about, I want to add this really quickly about the uh, the communal um, healing. I think that, I don't know, maybe this is not the correct name, but some of the principles that come from a women and gender studies course, I don't I don't know uh, what other way it could be named for children. But I think I think uh, with uh, children, it should be started where they receive an education about uh, valuing valu- valuing each other, no matter their ability, no matter their color. Yeah. That's no revolutionary. Their- That's th- that doesn't exist now. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, like, you know, you, it needs to start with children about val- valuing each other, no matter what color you are, no matter what hair texture you have, no matter you know uh, what level of ability. I think there should be more mixed classrooms with uh, mm-hmm. children of different abilities and things like that, just to for, to get people to value each other as human beings. Right you know, period. And I think that that would really assist with colorism, but I, I don't even know what they would name that that class. And I think a lot of people would rally against it because they would feel like it's too politically charged for children. Right. Girl, working in education. Yeah, you have children Girl, making fun back. of each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, and I think that's a revolutionary idea and I think that that absolutely needs to exist. And I mean, I feel like that's, we can, like I said, like there are so many different things. I don't want to go too far because like I said, that could be a whole different podcast yeah. where you talk about like the failings of education and like not, not the academic feelings, but the social and emotional feelings of the educational system. And I mean, I see it every day. Like I work in a, a, a very poor part of Dallas where, you know, the store on the corner, 30 people were murdered there last year, 30. Mm. And so having this conversation, even with my boys, like they met my boyfriend for the first time, uh, we had like a Thanksgiving and they were like, we want your boyfriend to come teach us because we'll feel like we'll learn more from him. And they told uh, me that. I said, really? I said, yeah, he gonna come in here and teach y'all about history and colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. Were they, they were saying that specifically because he's a man. Yeah. Oh no, it's so, so, so said, early. <laughs> no, and I mean, I mean, they're like 13, 14, 12, 13, 14 years old. And so then I said, well, well who taught you, you know, manners and who taught you how to just be a decent person? Right. Your mom. Well, my mama taught me that. My mama didn't raise me to. I said, your right. mama, she, she did what? She taught you that. 
So that right. means that just like she can teach you that, I can teach you. Mm-hmm. I was like, and I guarantee you would not get this level of education if my boyfriend was teaching you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you broke that down. Good, right. but I mean, it does. I think you said, especially when we talk about communal healing, I think that would be so revolutionary, especially for young, young children of color. Like I love seeing elementary kids, like small children in the class. The entire class is like, Latinx and black kids. I love that. Yes. I love it. I love it. Cause I'm just like, yes, like this is where a lot of these problems are so prevalent. We don't have access to that. And like liberation is situated in this patriarchal gaze where, you know, the people who are supposed to fight for our freedom are supposed to be the men. Yeah. And I mean, that, that, I mean, ultimately what that does, it just, it puts back in system, the system of patriarchy, which wasn't designed for men of color. Like I wish they knew that. And I wish they could just acknowledge like, White men not gonna give you the freedom you think you're about to get. Like, right. So, even when you get the money. Right. Yeah. Mm, still, nigga. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we but, have time for anything else? Uh, I'm thinking that we may have to do the four of us a part two. Okay. So I'm gonna cut us off tonight. <laughs> and thank you so much for listening with us uh, again. Just please. Um, Follow these ladies, keep in touch with all the amazing work that they're all doing uh, and so many different various aspects in academia and community organizing, um, art, writing, just education. Like we, we really are all just jacks of all trades, but uh, I hope that- of all trades. Excuse me. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> look at her, look at her. Yes. Oh my God, I'm so proud right now. Uh, But yes, we just want to thank you once again for listening with us and stay tuned for the rest of this series because this is going to be an ongoing series with multiple parts and multiple discussions happening from multiple perspectives. So thank you and good night.